It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello! Hello, you sound excitable. Oh, I'm excited to see you. I'm actually also excited that it's going to be, which is, it's, this isn't good news, but it's going to be very warm next week. It's going to be in the 20s. You're going to be wearing your short shorts? I wasn't quite going to be going there, actually. No, I was going to be going to cold water swimming. Oh, so I think it reopens actually next week. Is there a number in terms of the temperature in the water that you're waiting for it to hit before you can get those speedos back on and all well, the other I'll paraphernalia confess- you told us about? Well, I'll confess that I've sort of I've somewhat abandoned the cold showers. Why? It's a bit cold. I occasionally have a cold shower. But- Is this a hygiene issue? Have you stopped showering or have you gone back to the warm showers? I've gone back to the warm showers, really. So you're having these cold showers every day, and then one day you're in there and you're thinking... Well, you've rather sort of exposed me, so to speak. I wasn't only doing... It wasn't cold uh, cold shower, cold turkey. It was sort of, you know, medium turkey on the cold showers, (laughs) if you see what I mean. Uh, I think people are lost now, but... I don't think of myself as the type of broadcaster who can elicit a, a confession out of you someone can. but this is what i've just done with you in the whole cold shower situation yeah. uh no look i will i i'm gonna get back on the training the book's been the book and uh, my work and everything has been quite overwhelming but you know have you got any tips for me i'm reading the audio book into the tape next week into oh, a cassette i did a chapter of a book once years ago it's quite yeah. good fun did you like it at school in an english lesson when you'd get picked on by the teacher to read out loud not really. Everyone would snigger. Why? 
Well, I don't know, but, you know, I was imagining them sniggering. But you have such great delivery. You have that thespian side to you that comes out every now and again. Friends, Romans and countrymen. <laughs> I really think you should read your audiobook in that style. Do you think that's going to work? Mm. I'll tell you what else will work as well, if you do some impersonations in there. So I know at one point Gordon Brown is mentioned. Oh, yeah. Do you, oh, Gordon yes. Brown? It's a disaster. <laughs> I, if I were you, I would hastily go back to the publisher and insert some people who you could do impersonations of just for the benefit of the audiobook. Or you could do it I as mean, a bonus I mean, chapter. I mean, I mean, look, Jeff, you know, it's sort of you know, new labour. It's t- t- um, Tony Blair. It, it you were Brady, that close from Blair. saying one of his catchphrases just so that I knew who he was. I know, I know. That's pretty embarrassing. Um, anything else going on in your world? As Beatlemania? Uh, uh, Beatlemania is all, all going quite well the other day while i was doing some research for that show i found out and i can't believe that i'm nearly 48 years old and this was when i found this out i can't believe you're nearly 48 years old either you don't look a day over 47 (laughs) listen to this i did not realize you you will roll your eyes at this i'm sure i didn't realize that tarmac is short for tarmac adam right so what's that got to do with the beatles I was reading up about a caravan that John Lennon owned and had painted in 1967 that's being restored. And I came across the word tarmac Adam in the, uh, in the piece I was reading. And I thought, hang on a minute, is tarmac not the full word? And it turns out it isn't. It's a portmanteau of tar and Mr. McAdam who invented it. Amazing. Mm, that was my big revelation of the week. It was only a couple of years ago that I realised that but was short for buttocks. So I think I'm very slow on the uptake with some things. What did you think it was short for? I just thought it was a word in its own right. <laughs> but I, I think this sort of thing... Well, often, it is a word in its own right, isn't it? Yes, but I, don't, I didn't realise it was uh, etymologically related to buttocks. If you rang somebody accidentally, what would you describe it as? Uh, I would have previously described it as a pocket dial, but because I'm married to an American, I, I always think of it as a butt dial because that's what Sarah I mean, that is says. so interesting, isn't it? I was about to ask that question. Mm. Is it a pocket it's dial a for dial. you? Yeah, I don't think but, butt dial is a, is a, it's a little, I think, yeah, pocket <laughs> dial, I think is a sort of more sort of, don't you think? Yes. Um, shall I say what we're talking about? Yes. This week we're talking about the right to play. And it's an episode inspired, as so much on this podcast is, by two emails from our listeners. After our episode on Blue Zones, Amanda Morgan emailed us to say it got her thinking about the world we built for children and how much harder it is for children to play outside now than when she grew up. And then a couple of weeks ago, Alid Hansen emailed us to suggest we look at the right to play in Wales. He said, I live in Wales which in 2010 became the first country in the world to legislate on a child's right to play, which is also enshrined in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. This means there are cross Wales. There are hundreds of play schemes providing play opportunities free at the point of access, particularly during the summer holidays. He went on, I've been working on the play scheme in Flintshire in North Wales for two summers now, and it's been life-changing both for the kids on it and me too. Anyway, we've taken Alad up on his suggestion. We're going to be talking to him about the Flintshire play scheme, and it is really inspiring. Then we're talking to Marianne Manello from Play Wales about the right to play, why the UN recognises it, and how the Welsh government is leading the way. And finally, we're talking to writer and researcher Tim Gill. He's sort of Mr. Play. Uh, he's just written a book about what he calls child-friendly cities. We'll be chatting to him about how we can design public spaces to make it easier and safer for children to play and asking where in the world we can learn from. 
And our cheerful person this week is Jenny Chiguende, who is a volunteer at W12 Together, which is a community project in Wormholt and White City in West London. And we're going to be asking Jenny about exactly what W12 Together have been doing to support the local community during the last 12 months. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? Middle of the night last night, my mother-in-law, Ed, she's actually called Lynn, sent me a text message and I see it when I get up to go to the loo and it doesn't make any sense. And I think, oh, it's just one of her things. So this morning, there's a bit of a flurry on social media. And I see in the news that my brother-in-law and his wife, who run a sandwich business in Chicago, have in fact received a cake hand-baked by Meghan Markle using lemons from her own back garden. What? So it's not just them. It's um, it's a small group of people. I think there's three or four people. It was a women's luncheon for people who had helped out hospital workers and key workers and vulnerable people by delivering meals during the the pandemic. So Meghan Markle sent them a cake, a lemon cake. How incredibly kind of her. I know. But if you were Meghan Markle, would you really be getting... I mean, I, I would be delegating. I wouldn't be going out and picking lemons and, um, you know, dealing with wooden spoons. I mean, that is impressive. It's so weird. How, How are, are the, the barons? Are the barons over the moon? Yeah, I mean, it's completely upstaged anything I will ever be able to uh, impress my in-laws with. I mean, maybe that's a rather zero-sum way of looking at it. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> How can I be more impressive? <laughs> Than, than having a cake baked for me by a member of the royal family. Um, so that's uh, that's uh, that's me. What's well, that's, well, that's a good reason to be cheerful. So my reason to be cheerful, I did mention to the, this to you on the phone, is uh, Justine and I had our uh, jab, uh, our first vaccination last Saturday, um, and I just found it incredibly moving. You know, it's so impressive what the um, the, the sort of the kind of NHS, all the people working there. Yes, I just found it. I, you know. I was thinking, well, I might move because I'm getting the vaccination. And I, it was more than that. It was, it was just a sort of, just this incredible sense of a full scale operation of the NHS. All these people volunteering. The the guy that who did gave us the jab was, he was five days a week as a senior nurse, and he was volunteering one day in the weekend. He sort of said, well, you know, I could be just at home watching Netflix, but you know, why not do something useful? Um, it was just, it wasn't, I don't know whether you, how you found it, but I just found it incredibly moving and inspiring. No, exactly the same thing. It's a really special thing. Surprisingly special. And, you know, Boris Johnson was quoted during the week as saying something about how capitalism and greed were the reasons we'd been so successful. And, you know, I must say, Jeff, there wasn't much greed on display when I had my vaccination. Love actually is all around. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. We are going to begin in Flintshire, where else? The play epicentre of the world by talking to Alid Hansen, who is a student and summer play worker at Flintshire Play Scheme. Hello, Alid. Hello. What's going on in Flintshire? Why is Flintshire the play epicentre? Tell us about the scheme you've been working on. What, what is it? What does it involve? Okay, so play schemes have a really long history in Flincher. So the first play scheme is actually 40 years old in Flincher. Um, And then it's just sort of grown ever since, really. So 
Flinter Play Scheme at the moment now operates during the summer holidays, all six weeks during the summer. Uh, it operates at 56 different sites and on average around about 4,000 young people in the area take part every year. Wow. Um, yeah, it it really is amazing, as well as just the, the play provision. There's also a scheme called the Share Your Lunch Scheme, which takes uh, takes place alongside it. So that means on average about 800 hot meals a day are delivered, uh, you know, at the at the play scheme sites, just alongside the play. Uh, we've also got a buddy scheme, which means that if you've got a child with any additional needs, they have sort of a buddy to, to facilitate that play. And also two schemes which take place exclusively in the Welsh language so it's all going on in Flincher. (laughs) Tell tell us about the play what does what does it look like on the play schemes what happens? So the big thing about the play is that it's it's exclusively child-led so every day you turn up you literally have no idea what you're going to have done to you. I've had so many bad face paint jobs Um, (laughs) children just going mad on my face with face paints um it's just everything we've had water slides we've had bake-offs it's just sort of like the whole of flincher is just taken over by play just for the whole summer it's so joyful you know in sort of all the local areas and the local parks if you're walking around uh walking about going about your day you'll just see you know children having fun it, it really is just the best how did you get involved in the in it Alan? Um, so it, it, it was just one of those things that, uh, you know, I think increasingly as well as a young person, it's quite difficult to find part time jobs. You know, there's not a lot of high street jobs, There's sort of general things that, you know, a decade ago, young people would have done as like a summer job just isn't there anymore. So it was just that someone else had told me about it. And I sort of thought, oh, you know, I'll give it a go and apply. But but that's what's really good about it is, you know, as much as it, there's the really important side about providing the play for the young people, it also, you know, there's there's dozens and dozens of young people, you know, from local sixth forms, from universities who like are getting like good, meaningful employment during the summer. How old are you, Alan? Just just for the benefit of our listeners. <laughs> so I'm 21. Right. And did you have experience of the play scheme when you were a child in Flinch? Did you grow up in Flincher or...? Yeah, yeah. So I'd been to the play scheme as a child and the vast majority of people who work on it did also go to the play scheme as a child as well. I remember when I... Do you have any memories of a play scheme as a child? Not really, no. No. I remember they had one in my local primary school and there was this guy who was there, I can't remember his name, and he did extraordinary leg spin bowling. (laughs) <laughs> at that point leg spin is the cricket cricketing term for those who understand at that point leg spin leg spinning had sort of gone out of fashion and i have very 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 fond memories of it actually tell us um tell us about how the play schemes relate to the right to play in wales so i think the significant thing about about the right to play is that you know it's been legislated on by the united nations so it, there's that acknowledgement that every child has the right to play but i think the difference in wales is that it comes alongside that acknowledgement that you know there are barriers to that right to play as well so i think that's that's what the play scheme is very good at tackling in the sense that it's completely free. It's completely, you know, free at the point of access. So every single child in Flincher can take part if they want to. And I, I guess that, uh, that that sort of gives us an idea of how important it is and these kinds of provisions with regards to tackling inequality between children. 
Definitely. And I think especially, you know, conversations around inequality relating to children and child poverty often are are really centred around food poverty. And that's a really important issue. That's, you know, the most vital issue, of course. But, you know, these other things like play are also massively important to a child's development. And often that doesn't come into the conversation very often. What is interesting in Wales is sort of the, the different ways that's being tackled. For example, when lockdown first came in, and obviously children's opportunity to play with each other outside, you know, completely went, um, the the Welsh Government introduced a hub scheme, which was a, a scheme to sort of tackle digital inequality in Wales. And as part of this, they had like a, a programme, uh, a sort of um, hub of programmes, so, uh, you know, to, to help them with their schoolwork, things like Microsoft Word, whatever. But they also included Minecraft in the in the hub of programmes. My 11-year-old son was extremely excited when he said to me, I just, he's actually been at home today, but he's not been well. So I told him about this and he said to me, I'm moving to Wales. So Minecraft was included. Well, yeah, which is really interesting. It's the recognition that as sort of, as as play changes, the, the ability to sort of adapt to that. Um, and and also that there was some really interesting research done after the first lockdown came in that 50% of young people had communicated with their friends over video games and, and two-thirds of the parents of those young people thought it contributed positively to their well-being. So, you know, I think as much as conversations about video games can sometimes be like, oh, you know, it, it's not as good as proper play, you know, especially in, in the situation of lockdown, it was one of the only way young people were were uh, communicating with each other. Sounds great. We've got this thing, Alid, on the podcast called The Jeffocracy, and, uh, you know, there's lots of play in The Jeffocracy, mainly being done by Jeff, I fear. Just if we made you, what, what would you like to, I, I was going to say Minister for Minecraft, but maybe not. <laughs> uh, what do you think, Minister for Play, Jeff, do you think? Sure. You think Secretary of State for Play, what would you say we should we should be we should be doing? I think the the discussion you had the other week about about Joe Biden's stimulus checks was was really interesting. And I sort of thought in the Jeffocracy, if there was some sort of economic shock that we needed a recovery, I think a, a um, play stimulus check w- would be a really good so a play based recovery to to an economic shock. So I think that everyone should be given a, a, an amount of money by the government, and it can only be spent on something playful. So like wow. if yeah, I so love if they it. take it to I a shop it. and they you know if 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 they want to like buy like you know like a lawnmower or something really boring like that, it will decline. The system <laughs> knows whether it's playful or not. What so if it's what? one of those sit-on lawnmowers? That's maybe playful. that maybe that's that's playful enough. That's interesting. That I think Alid uh, Alid uh, is yeah, uh, a new contender to... for the puppet prime minister. Ed, I think he yeah, have a job. To say, I think he gets the job and more. Mm. Jeff, what would you buy with this Jeffocracy stimulus? Play Some check? apparatus of what kind? Well, do you remember the apparatus you used to have in primary school? Where they'd say, okay, we're going to get the apparatus out. And there's like climbing frames and ropes and big crash mats. I used to hate the apparatus. You hated the apparatus? Not as much as I hated the trapeze. Well, not not the trapeze. Sorry, don't mean the trapeze. I was going to say, were you you raised in the circus? I mean, you know that, was it called a pommel horse? 
Oh, yeah, the vaulting horse thing. Yeah, vaulting yeah, horse. Yeah, that, that wasn't great, was it? Yeah, No, it wasn't. I, I had many a bad encounter with the vaulting horse. I think I would use it to buy an old version of the ZX Spectrum with Manic Miner. And I would and I would then sort of retake up Manic Miner, but in its sort of original form on the, you know, on a ZX Spectrum. You'd have to get an old telly to plug it into. Well, Alid, I'm inspired. Are you going to be doing uh, a play scheme over the Easter holidays, Alid? So, yeah, there, there is going to be a play scheme in Flincher over Easter, um, which, which is quite exciting. Uh, but the, the big aim is going to be summer. It's going to be the, probably one of the most important play schemes in years. You know, we've had a year of lockdown. So it's, it's really exciting just to go into it and think, right, we're just going to make this the best summer ever for, for the kids in Flincher. Well, look, Alan Hansen, you've been incredibly uh, inspiring and we look forward to you um, helping to facilitate a summer of play. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Now to talk further about the People's Republic of Play Wales, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Marianne Manello, who is Assistant Director of Play Wales, a charity dedicated to helping children play. And she joins us from Wales, uh, from just outside Llantrisant. How was that, Marianne? That's right. That's very good, Ad. Well yeah, done. <laughs> I'm just fishing for compliments here. Um, you, can you can you just start by telling us what um, uh, Play Wales is and uh, and what you do? Sure. So we're the national charity for children's play um, here in Wales, and we work to raise awareness of children's right and their need um, to play across all areas of of government decision making um, in the country. This isn't a really sort of um, silly question, but just it is, it is a bit basic. Why is play beneficial for children? Oh, how long have we got? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I mean, it's you've, you've kind of um, set the scene a little bit. It's well established um, that playing is good for children. It's served us as a species well um, through generations in terms of supporting health and well-being. In terms of obvious... Um, Outcomes, benefits, um, playing helps children both from a physical activity and exercise perspective, um, but with real mental health benefits as well. Um, we know that children playing together helps them to socialize, helps them to learn new things, helps them to negotiate, work out conflicts, um, no, work out how far to go. Children playing on their own is is good too. It helps them to work out how to fill their time, um, how to be creative, how to cope with boredom. But that's not why children play. If if I asked you what your favourite play memory was, what what would it be? Oh, crumbs. Maybe you were, I don't know, Ed, were you imagining you were Clement Attlee? I mean, were you doing little make-believe games where you're Nye Bevan? (laughs) I was just saying, Marianne, that I have a very strong and positive memory of a cricket I think it was a summer play scheme, cricket, okay. uh, with this guy who was an incredible leg spin bowler. And I do remember having great, great fun. It was at the my primary school, just which is just across the way from where I grew up. You hit the nail on the head there when you said you remember having fun. Yeah. 
when we were playing, we didn't shout up the stairs and say, "Mom, I'm going out to calibrate my muscles or, or learn <laughs> yeah. how to or learn how to negotiate um, my social relationships or feel connected with my neighborhood." We went out because it gave us pleasure. There are obvious long-term benefits that people talk about in terms of children's play. For children in the here and now, it is a vital dimension to the happiness of a good childhood. Now, how has the experience of the last year or so affected children's ability to play? Because it's obviously been very, very restricting. I mean, I think when we know, I mean, we know we're in, um, you know, recently had the the year anniversary of going into the first lockdown. And so we know, you know, playgrounds closed, parks closed, schools closed, play work provision um, closed, and a lot of play was taken in and around the home. In Wales, we know that the Children's Commission, our Children's Commissioner here in Wales, um, held a survey with children, over 20,000 children in um, soon after the first lockdown, soon after school was closed. And one of the questions she asked was, are you playing more or less since schools closed? And a small majority of the children, about 53% of the children said at that time in May um, that they were playing more. Um, So we were heartened by that. However, it was a mixed bag. Some children had good experiences in the early days, um, others not so. So like most of the um, lockdown and the coronavirus pandemic has heightened inequalities right, you know, right across the whole social spectrum. and, And that's, you know, so it's the same for children's play. I wanted to talk to you about the right to play. Now, this is enshrined in the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child. So what does the UN say? How, how, are, how are they defining play? Um, t- tell us a bit more about the fact that this exists in this UN convention. Yeah, so that's right. So the convention is, um, um, listeners will, will, will know, many listeners will know, is kind of one of the is this most signed up international human rights treaty um, in the world and has been, um, has been in, in um, place since 1989. So it's a well-established um, treaty. Um, you know, but from time to time, if the committee feels that people aren't you know, really getting one of the articles, they produce further guidance um, around children's play. So in um, 2011, the International Play Association felt, um, having listened to children and their advocates around the world, that um, adults didn't understand the right to play. And the association campaigned to the committee for further guidance. It's called a general comment, number 17. And in that general comment, it's it's a it's a lovely um, piece of writing, actually, in, in terms of international treaties go. Um, but it defines play rather nicely and and very um, useful for those of us that are play advocates. It talks about key characteristics of having challenge, uncertainty, flexibility, you know, non-productivity, and I suppose most crucially. Um, for us um, is that it also sets out recommendations for governments, um, for state parties. And one of the key recommendations is that state parties consider introducing legislation um, around children's play and that those laws should consider the principle of sufficiency so that children have enough time and space to play. So are those the, the, the two main elements of it in terms of recommendations, and then, of course, there'll be a lot more detail, but it's about the, the time being protected and about, about there being space. And is that space as in outdoor space? 
it's outdoor space, but you know, there's a recognition that, that children play in, in all in all places and see the play value in a lot of places. And so when we're talking about outdoor spaces, um, the general comment sets out, but us and so does, you know, lots of other policy instruments, um, that it goes beyond what we might normally consider places for children to play. So it goes beyond parks and playgrounds is as important as those are to children they aren't the only places that support children's play and what are the barriers to children doing that then um other than you know access to playgrounds and those types of spaces children report that the biggest barrier is traffic um and their the second biggest barrier that children report is parental fears the biggest parental fear is the speed and volume of traffic. There are increased educational demands on children. And, you know, there are concerns and misplaced emphasis, I suppose, on, on strangers. But when you unpick that with, with parents, it's more about um, people they don't know. And, and a lot of that is that, you know, neighbor, neighborhoods, um, certainly pre-pandemic, weren't feeling as connected as they might have been in, in previous um, generation. So there are there are a lot of barriers and they do cross those domains of time, space and permission. Can we talk about Wales specifically? So um, tell us about how the right to play is protected in Wales. Uh, there's this play sufficiency duty. Tell us a bit more about that. So through legislation in, in 2010, um, through uh, a piece of legislation called the Children and Families Wales Measure, um, the Welsh Government placed a statutory duty on local authorities to assess and to secure, where practicable, um, opportunities for children to play. So local authorities are required to assess opportunities um, to play. I think the strength of the of the legislation is that each of the local authorities has been able to do something quite creative based on their own situation um, and their resources, because the, the outcome, the The aim of the legislation, according to the statutory guidance, is more children will be playing. So that's what we're measuring. Um, You know, we're not measuring BMI or um, A-level results, which is really, you know, other people are doing that. And those as important as those are, what what the place efficiency lead offices in each local authority are doing is how many, you know, are children playing more? How satisfied um, are they? But I do think, you know, we've had some really lovely examples, um, like removing no ball game signs, where it's been demonstrated that they don't, they do, they're not actually um, needed. Tear down those signs. Yeah. <laughs> don't you think, Jeff? Absolutely. I love this. So, so basically what you're saying is that this way of thinking is just now routinely applied to new initiatives and ideas and, and policies. Well, um, um, that's the ideal. Um, yeah. So no, I, I, that, let's let's be realistic and pragmatic. You know, though, changing that so those some of those infrastructures takes a long time. But what we do have in in Wales is a you know a growing body of ideas and case studies that work. One other thing, Marianne, we have a thing on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, where Jeff is the supreme, playful, benign uh, ruler. Um, if you were, if you were the minister for play. What's the first thing you tell him we needed to do? 
So I would tell Jeff that he should be directing um, school governors to consider making their grounds available for play when the school day um, ended, particularly in communities where there wasn't good outdoor space. I would be advising Jeff to instruct our inspectorate here in Wales, which is Eston, um, to inspect playtime as part of their school inspections. Is playtime protected? Is playtime withdrawn if children don't finish their work on time? Do kids get to go outside if they want to when it's raining? And I suppose the only thing I would add, though, is to remember that, you know, government support and buy-in and investment in children's play is really, really important. Um, But it takes a while. Um, But by our nature, grown-ups, adults are in position of power when it comes to children's play when it comes to children's childhoods. We are the teachers that make sure children have time to play even if they haven't finished their work. We're the drivers who could drive more carefully in our streets if we know that children are out and about. We're the planners who could think about the built environment from the outset and how children are going to move around it rather than think about putting in a springy chicken and a set of slides um, at at the end of building. We're the Mrs. Evans next door who throws the balls back when they go in her garden rather than pop them. You know, we should all be like Mrs. Evans. There's a lot, you know, we can do a lot. To, we need to pay attention to the conditions that support children's play in the here and now. So I think there's more that everyday people can do every day to make sure that more children are realising their right to play. Well, look, it's been incredibly inspiring to talk to you, uh, Marianne Manello. Uh, from Play Wales. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you all. It's been lovely. Now to top off this cornucopia of play, I'm delighted to say that we are joined by Tim Gill, who is writer, researcher, author of the new book, Urban Playground, How Child-Friendly Planning and Design Can Save Cities. Tim, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be here. Let's start with the kind of basic question, really, which is, In recent decades, you say that the, quote-unquote, everyday freedoms of children have declined. Um, Maybe you can talk to us about that. I don't know, um, Ed, if you want to share with us your memories of your your childhood. I'm happy to share mine. I'm in my 50s, and when I was even, you know, just eight, nine years old, I pretty much could go as far as I liked on a weekend or on a sunny evening – and, you know, the only constraint was that I had to get home by tea time or before it got dark. Now, and where was that, Tim? Where well, it, yes, in my case, that was a, a large village in the home counties. Uh, right. And but, you know, I, and that, that's that's that was that wasn't being a free range child. That was just being a child. Um, and I know the nostalgia klaxon is blaring loudly when I when I say that. But but I, it's very clear that over recent generations and it's a generational change children's horizons have gradually shrunk there are statistics on this is my right in saying that absolutely um there's a, a set of studies around what's called children's independent mobility which is precisely you know how much freedom the children have to get around that shows for instance in the in the early 1970s about eight out of ten eight-year-old children went to school on their own uh, and by the 1990s, so just 20 years, that had dropped from 8 out of 10 to 1 out of 10. 
And before we talk about some sort of antidotes to this and some good examples, why has this happened? Talk to us about some of the reasons for the for the uh, disappearance of these everyday freedoms. Yeah, I mean it's complicated. I do believe, and I make the case in my book that that the, the most important reason, and the reason goes back fifty, sixty years or more, is that we, you know, we, the way we build neighbourhoods, the human habitats that kids are growing up in today are just not conducive. They don't allow those everyday freedoms. So we've we've baked in or hardwired a kind of captive childhood into our uh, neighbours, towns, and cities. But there are other changes as well around. You know, fear of crime, generalised fear of the outdoors, of, of strangers, changes in the sort of texture and rhythms of, of family life. Of course, the growth of technology. It is complicated. But as I say, I, th- I think the kind of you strip away a lot of those cultural changes, social and even economic changes. And, and underneath that, you've got the basic facts about the habitats where where we're bringing up the young of our species. And those habitats are not very conducive to those to to to, to, to the to our young having the kind of freedoms that i think they deserve now that's the bad news if you like talk to us about some of the good news what are the best cities in the world for children i think specifically in your book you talk about the examples of rotterdam and tirana but but give us the sort of what's the vision here rotterdam i think is the most is, it's particularly interesting because it's a it's a city that's probably invested more than any other city on earth in making its its neighbourhoods, its physical environment, more child-friendly. And B, because it did so for really quite hard-nosed economic reasons. There was a survey about 15 years ago uh, in the Netherlands that showed that Rotterdam was the worst city in the Netherlands to bring up a child. And and to their credit, you know, the the, the city leaders realised they had to do something about it. So they, they've invested tens of millions of euros in, in a, a range of programmes, but uh, a, you know, a big focus has been tackling traffic, opening up uh, schoolyards, parks, uh, making pavements wider, um, making it easier to walk and cycle, and also in measuring the, the impact of this and, and also being able to show that this has actually helped bring families back into the city. What they realise is with a, a city that's losing families, where any family that wants to is moving out, is a city whose long-term future is bleak. And tell us about Tirana as well, Tim. Tirana's fascinating because, um, so the capital city of Albania, uh, a country that, that, that even by the standards of, you know, the kind of post-communist countries, uh, had, a, had an appalling recent history the city was broken uh no real kind of planning transport was chaotic they had a new mayor uh Arion Veliage, who's he kind of landed on children as a unifying symbol in this very divided uh and poor city and so for him now uh children have become the focus of a conversation about how the city can be better and one of the first things that he discovered was that making neighbourhoods better for kids and specifically building community playgrounds where all the generations could come together was incredibly popular. And, he, you know, he's becoming, I think, uh, for him, the children are a lens through which he can he can see progressive policies being taken forward across the cities. And give us the common elements, the menu, if you like, of what what are the elements of what makes a, a child-friendly city? 
it's not just about building playgrounds, is it? Ab- absolutely not. In fact, playgrounds are, are, are kind of down the list. Um, first and foremost, it's about streets. Um, you know, the, when we step outside of our front door, what do we see? We see streets. And, and are those streets welcoming places where we as parents might be happy to let our children go out, where we feel that they are going to be safe and crucially safe from traffic? Also, walking and cycling networks Cycling is fascinating. I mean, again, I can remember my own childhood. By the age of 10, you know, I, I, I pretty much could, could go as far as I liked on my bike as long as I could get back in time for tea. And the, the, the bicycle is a, is a fantastic stepping stone on this sort of journey that I think we want all children to take to be responsible, independent, confident, capable people. So cycling is a big element as well. Then, you, of course, great a mixture of public spaces of different kinds, play spaces, nature areas, parks, uh, sports areas, and also thinking about housing and particularly when we're building new housing, how um, you know the, the, the homes and the spaces fit together so that, for instance, children can come straight out from their front doors and find places to play. So it's, it's those four elements, really. Streets, walking cycling networks, public spaces of different kinds, and you know, well-designed housing that come together to to make a great child-friendly neighbourhood. It's difficult, isn't it? Because if children are going to play literally outside their front door, that's often going to be a road. And how does the car coexist with that? That's, I suppose, a question, isn't it? It, We've normalised a a way of living where the car is central and and that and children suffer the most from that and we haven't you know haven't touched on on obesity on air pollution or and you know there are a, a lot of the the um impacts that the adverse impacts of car centered planning land on children the most um and again that's a big message from my book and the cities that are tackling it are tackling the dominance of the car We've got a thing on the podcast called The Jeffocracy with Jeff um, as the supreme ruler. If you were in charge of um, how we have child pre- of child-friendly planning and design in cities, um, make it a place of, uh, to restore these everyday freedoms, what's the first kind of few things you'd do? If I did have a magic wand, I would be very tempted to do what they're trying to do in Rotterdam, make every pavement at least three metres wide especially the pavement on the sunny side of the street. I think that could, that could be an amazing um, transformational shift. If you, don't, if you take away my magic wand, I would say let's get the mayors of all of the cities and towns in, in the UK talking to children and young people, actually starting a conversation about, about reflections on, on the, the generational differences, these changes in childhood, and, and maybe what that means for children today. If I, if I had my, 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 you know, uh, chance to, to to knock some heads together i'd want to get bring those insights into the conversation i think lots of people tim listening to you and to our other contributors will be really inspired one of the questions a listener asked in the last few weeks is okay it's it's great to hear inspiring ideas but you know what can we do to make a difference so if 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 we were to ask you how can our listeners begin to build pressure for child friendly planning for restoring the everyday freedoms in their own neighborhoods their own street um uh, what would you suggest 
Well, I'm a big fan of a movement called Playing Out. Um, and this is uh, uh, residents coming together to simply, uh, with, the, with the support of the council, close the streets to traffic for maybe a couple of hours a week on a Sunday. Um, not, you know, no bunting, no, um, uh, just, just simply parties. so kids, no street parties, simply so kids can come out and play and neighbours can come and chat. Wow, and it's, it's a really catalytic process. It has a, can have a massive impact, not just on children, of course, or the families of those children. Good idea. But, but, but building neighbourhoods. So, so the playing out organisations based in Bristol, we're already seeing, you know, hundreds of streets up and down the country. Um, so I'd, I'd say to, to people listening, check that out. Find out if your local council will support it. And if they don't, put pressure on them so that they do. It's really good. It's playing out. So we'll tell people to go to their website. And also, we want people to be able to buy your book. Um, I believe there is a discount code you want yes. to tell people. Thank you, Ed. That's very generous of you. I, I my, my publishers have offered a, an £8 discount on the book, Urban Playground. So that's the Reba, R-I-B-A bookshop. Uh, you need to use the code cheerful eight chim gill it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you thank you so much for joining us it's been a pleasure Ed. thank you well jeff what do you see through the round window <laughs> before we started recording today i said to my son who is almost five when he said what are you and ed doing in your work today i said we're talking about an idea i'd like to know what you think of this idea the idea is that children should get to play more what do you think about that and he said something quite profound. I believe you. He is profound. He said, no, children should get to wear jumpers with sea creatures on them more. Did he say that? Yeah. So not a big priority for him. But as far as I'm concerned, I'm completely convinced. I suppose what struck me, a couple of things struck me. I mean, one is I think we really don't talk about children and play hardly at all in our society. We talk a lot about learning, exams, school, etc., but do we don't really talk about, you know, the ability to play and, and, and you know, what that means. And, and it's a sort of, it's a kind of stereotype, isn't it? Not stereotype, but, you know, cliche. Oh, you know, when I was, a, when I was a kid, I could, you know, bike 23 miles, you know, be out till midnight and, you know, nobody would bat an island. That's the kind of, that's the kind of urban mythology but, you know, then talking to Tim, you know, there is evidence that, you know, people are just much less likely to be able to go and, you know, kids to do stuff on their own. Um, and then if you I suppose I was thinking about this as like in the eyes of a child, if you looked at the world and the way our sort of streets are organised through the eyes of a child, I'm not sure it looks very friendly I really bought it, and I was I was really inspired by Alan. Oh my goodness! I yeah, I, I, I want to go and play on a play scheme in Flintshire. I want to go and be a kid in Flintshire. Basically, I know mean, that's going to be hard to arrange, even for the Jeffocracy. Well, there's always reincarnation. I, thanks. But the other thing I really liked, and this came from a listener comment too, is what can people do? And I and I'm on the website of playingout.net, and I'd really encourage people to go and look at it because it looks really really fan dabby dozy email us reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com follow us on twitter at cheerful podcast or search for our facebook page reasons to be cheerful podcast 
It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Time for this week's cheerful person. It's Jenny Chigwende, who is volunteer and health lead for W12 Together. Jenny, hello. Hi, hello. Thanks for having hello. me. Hello. Tell us, let's... let's, let's um, get into it. What is W12 Together and what is the story behind it? Okay, so um, W12 Together is like a resident-led board, which um, was created by a thing called Big Local. So Big Local is an organisation that gives 150 uh, communities that are deprived some money to be able to do good things in the community. We were formed in June 2019. And then we kind of spent six months putting a plan together, speaking to people in the community, thinking about what was needed. And then we sort of got going uh, January 2020. So, yeah. And can you just tell us a bit about the community? So what was it like before you you formed the group? What what was the need that was there? So the reason we call W12 together, first of all, is because it's after the postcode. So we're based in W12. So that was that's uh, White City and Wormhole um, in London. And um, there's a lot of deprivation. So even though uh, we are in Hammersmith and Fulham, which people think is kind of quite a affluent borough, there is a part of it in the north that is quite deprived. So there's quite a lot of um, health issues. For, um, uh, so things like uh, obesity and, and difficulties with things like diabetes, stuff like that, um, and lots of sort of mental health needs as well. But also... Um, issues around children having places to play, green spaces to play. So there's a big estate, but there's very small pockets of greenery. So it's things like that that we were thinking that we'd really want to kind of support with and help with. Jenny, what's been the experience? Because you said you were launched in January 2020, but obviously we've had the appalling last year of COVID. What's been the experience of COVID of the group and and how, how has it worked during that time? I mean, as you can imagine, because we only started in January, pretty soon afterwards, COVID hit. So we had all these plans and we'd written this plan of things we wanted to do. And then when COVID hit, we just, we realised that actually there was a real need financially in the area to kind of just help some of those people that we've, those groups that we'd engaged with to get stuff out. There was a huge need in the food bank. There was a massive rise of need of kind of food in the area. And so we uh, started funding the food bank uh to kind of help with that. And then we sort of realised that there were lots of bits we didn't know. And so, for example, we funded the food bank, but we've got lots of people from the Somali community in our area, lots of people from the Eritrean community and, and the Caribbean community. And they were saying, 
we don't eat tins. So, you know, we don't eat from tins. We eat cooked food. We eat, you know, halal food, all of these things. So it's great that you're funding the food bank. But what about us? So then we started um, speaking to organizations that did cook food and were able to deliver kind of Caribbean meals to kind of the elderly Caribbean people in the community that were able to kind of cook halal meals for people. If you had to describe your, the, the kind of, experience which you didn't expect of being involved in w12 together during covid how would you describe the experience i would say it's slightly humbling i guess because we didn't realize when we first started we thought we'd sort of maybe do a few little things in the community that might be helpful but what happened during covid is we had people who had realized that we've done all of this kind of research to find out what the community needed so we had people like the GPs in the area asking us about if we could help them with various things. So when the vaccine was being rolled out, they said, we know, you know, lots of people in the community. There's lots of kind of BAME people in the community that we're concerned might not be coming forward for the vaccine. Can you speak to some of those groups or leaders in the community to get them to encourage people to come? Could you support? So something that we funded was a service called On Hand, which helped elderly people if they needed prescriptions or they needed food, they needed help. So when the vaccine was being rolled out again, we were able to support elderly people that were quite isolated, who were scared to come forward so that there was a, a volunteer that would go to their door, knock on their door, kind of make sure they were able to take them and bring them back. So those sorts of things. So I didn't anticipate that we would be kind of that helpful at the very beginning because we sort of didn't know how we could help when we all went into lockdown, really. How long have you lived in the area, Jenny? I think about 13 years. Yeah. So you've been there a good while and and I I just admire it so much when someone like you gets involved because I always love the idea of it, but I don't want to be doing it myself. Will will you tell us a little bit about what it is in you that um, felt the need to to volunteer where does that come from in you and also maybe how many hours a week does it take and and how do you combine it with doing anything else (laughs) i guess um i suppose so i work in a mental health service i work in a children's mental health service um uh in east london and i think that i see a lot of need in the job that i do and a lot of ways maybe that we can't help in the way that I, you know, like sort of a very practical, simple way that's saying, let's give some money to the food bank. We know that you need food. This was a way that I felt that I could help and I could kind of meet those that those needs more immediately. But also, um, I think initially when we started, we'd committed four hours a week to this. And we, I mean, no, four hours a week was even a week. It was a month, I think. It was like an hour, yeah, an hour a week. And then obviously over COVID, it's just sort of mushroomed and mushroomed and mushroomed. But also we've started to recruit staff as well because we've realized that having full-time jobs and being able to engage in the way that we want to isn't possible what should this teach us about the way services work the way uh, something like big local works which sounds like one of the points i think of big local is it gives quite a lot of power to the community to decide how to spend the money Mm. we're interested as a podcast in the kind of lessons of the crisis what has the crisis taught us or you know how can we rebuild in a better way Talk to us maybe specifically about the big local experience, but then just more widely the the, the, the kind of gaps and, 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 and inequalities that you see. Mm. The community knows what they need. And I think sometimes the important thing is to listen. Often people want to do sort of wide bits of research and apply them almost a cookie cutter approach to lots of different areas. And I think something 
if you take White City and Wormhole, it's sort of a unique community if you look at it in the way it operates. And I think that it's really taking each community and thinking that they there may be problems and there may be inequalities, but they also have the answers. If you listen and if you're able to kind of listen to communities, they're able to tell you what's wrong, but they're always able to tell you what they think will fix it and what they think will help as well. So, This is a probably unfair question, but somebody said to the, this to me yesterday. If you could send a, an email to Jenny in March 2020 from Jenny in March 2021 about what you've sort of learnt during this, during the last year? What would, what would the email, what would you be saying to Jenny in 2020? First of all, that you can manage more than you think you can. And I think we've all learnt that. But also, I think that the things that maybe the material things that we've that maybe focused on or uh, in the past and have been important are not the most important things. It's really the connections and the, the people you love, the people you care about, the community around you are the things that are going to hold you up and sustain you. Good note to end on, Jenny. You've certainly fulfilled the brief. Definitely <laughs> che- cheer- cheerful person. Jenny Chigwende, a volunteer and a health uh, lead for W12 Together. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, cheering us. Thank you for having me. <laughs> Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Right, well, we're in the outro and we have some sort of relatively dramatic happening which is going to have to be resolved next week like all good box sets. It means I have to get through the outro pretty quickly because just as we were preparing to press record, my wedding ring fell off my ring finger and has gone down the floorboards and I don't know if I can get it back or not. It's extremely tense here at the moment. It's possible that I'll have to go downstairs and tell my wife that this has happened. Ed is making the hand gesture. Under no circumstances should I do that. Well, look, if you need any help uh, over the weekend, you obviously, you know... (laughs) Don't don't call me. No, because, no, no. You know, you'd be the last person not, I'd call. Yeah, it's not really my. Kind, it's the no. kind of thing that would happen to me. Yes. Do you know, I mean? Do you know the difference between a schlamuzzle and a schlemiel? I think I'm right in saying, but somebody will check this. I think I'm right in saying that a schlemiel is somebody who knocks over the soup, and a schlamuzzle is somebody on whom the soup is knocked. <laughs> um, um, I mean, I have to say, I have both schlemiel and schlamuzzleish tendencies, but. Um, Congratulations, that's quite rare. It's like being a rare blood type. It's like a twofer. So, should we do our thank you, kindly? Mm. I'd like to thank Alid Hansen, Marianne Manello, and Tim Gill. And thanks to Jenny Chigwende from W12 Together. Emma Caution produces our podcast, all the research and guest booking is done by Joel Pierce. He faithfully uploads it to the internet every week afterwards. If you want to know what we know, thanks to Joel, you can find it at cheerfulpodcast.com. Joel is supported by Joe Kenyon from Goldfish. And uh, we salute and say hello to Left Foot Forward. Hello. Hello. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music. James Deacon made our eye dance and our artwork was designed by Henry Cole. He's been P-L-A-Y. He's been A-W-A-Y. And this has been... Play Away! That'll mean something to listeners over the age of 40-something. Imagine 
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bolin Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bolin Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bolandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.